You are listening to an Irreverent Podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Pastor. Doctor. We're at it again. Here we go. I just, uh, right before I started the recording, I was grunting. Like yes. I was feeling a little primal. Like I heard the grunt. Like, let's go. Uh, uh. Yeah. I'm excited. What are we talking about today? Or do we want to catch up? Let's catch up. Let's catch up because what we're talking about today makes my head hurt. Yeah. Well, oh. let me just, let me just say that, um, some of you might be listening who follow us on social media and you might know that I made an appeal for mutual aid and people are still giving and we've exceeded our goal, but every little bit helps because, um, my 74, 74 year old mother is relocating to Nashville and doesn't have the means to do it. And so I appealed to community to make that happen. And I just want to say thank you to those who gave and gave generously and and people gave everywhere between $5 and $500. And um, it's been really amazing to see literally the entire world show up uh, for me. Um, people from Europe gave, people from Canada gave, our friend uh Jen Thomas uh, participated in the mutual aid effort. Um, other people in Canada gave, people from Latin America gave, and people from the U.S. And so really this was a global event of support. And it reminds me, you know, um, we only need to know about 60 people to have six degrees of separation. Right. To be connected to everyone in the world. And if we are going to build another possible world, which I believe we can do, we have to do it together. And so I've been relying on a lot of community support over the past couple of weeks um, when I found out that my mother needed a different living arrangement. And it's hard to do that when you're old and disabled and um and hundreds of miles away from you know from support yeah from anyone yeah but i i just want to sort of update people and let folks know we we did it together and i i'm floored i kind of can't believe it and it's a real testament to the power of community and so if you've questioned community in the past Here's, here's a prime example of the way community came together and is real. I mean, people are reaching out to me and asking, what do you need? And I'm like, light your candles, you know, um, send magic, send incantations, 
send what you can. Um, but I've really been deeply humbled by the generous support of folks and it's enough money to, to relocate her. And I've got the application to get her on the waiting list for senior housing. And that's exciting. And, um, I just feel really buoyed right now by literally hundreds of people who, who gave. Yeah. It's a wonderful testament to who we have the capacity to be as humans. Mm, yeah. Um, imagine but, that. Imagine that. Uh, so other, other than that, how are you doing? How are you, how are you feeling about um, your world and the world? I know you're consumed with a lot of stuff. Anything interesting going on? Well, funny you ask. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, that's it sounds like an announcement. I know it's not because I would already known about it already. But <laughs> did I bury the lead? No. Okay. Funny you ask. I just at eleven o'clock dropped off a documentary photographer at the airport to head home. They have been here documenting my every move for the past week, and they are doing a project on documenting trans faith leaders and um you got to be a part of some of that when you came over for breakfast i was really glad um because you know like we're still in covid and that means i'm still at home a lot right uh normally they would show up at an event and document the event or you know what have you but we're still cloistered, living that cloistered life. So it's, and, so it's cute that you say that. It's cute that you say that normally they would have shown up where you aren't. Even when it's not the COVID life, you're still at home. I mean, that's true. That, that, that is true. That is true. But but like normally we will be doing things in the world well, at some point. True, true, true. But yeah, yeah cute, I am a homebody. It's cute that you make it sound like, you know, you're just, you just don't enjoy being at home, you know, except for when, you know, the, the pandemic forces you to. I love being at home. I yeah. know you do. I know you do. So Salgu is their name, and they are a Korean artist and Korean photographer. Uh, they're based in Sacramento, and we had a really great time. They're just a lovely human. I feel really good about this project and their work and the way that they're stewarding things. I mean – it really, this work is emerging and that, that feels really good to me. And, you know, they, they've got, I mean, when I say they documented my every move, I mean, they've got a zoom recorder. So they're recording what I'm saying. Um, they, they, there's a camera all the time, you know, and they didn't photograph the bedroom or the bathroom. Good. And, and so there, there is some sense of privacy, right. you know, right. uh, but yeah, my life is being documented for like now into the future on this project. And, and you came over for breakfast and that was really fun. And yeah, so- I didn't even know they were going to be there. I, my uh, niece who is, um, entering her senior year at Mercyhurst College uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania, came down to visit us and and her grandparents for two weeks. And I had to take her back to the airport very early in the morning in Nashville. And 
just kind of thought, I, I mean, I knew I was going to be passing through at like 8 a.m., which is not normally a time when you're seeing anything other than still the inside of your eyelids. But correct, I said, you know, what are you doing? Are you going to be up? And you said, actually, yes, I teach at this time and you can come at this time. And uh, it worked out really well. And then you said, oh, and BTW, the documentarian right. is going to be here. So at least I do your like, hair. Yeah. At least I didn't just wear leggings and a t-shirt or, um, yeah, right. or come with a, you know, with a ball cap on or something. Yes. Yeah. I, I was, uh, I didn't, I didn't go all out. I didn't become my fabulous femme self, but I, I did at least, you know, put on deodorant and get yep. myself, get myself yep. looking as if I was prepared to go out in public. <laughs> yeah. When you initially called and said, are you available for, for brunch? I was like, Oh, that sounds so good. But, you know, I was teaching from 9 to 11. And so that meant I had to get up earlier than 8.52 and teach at 9.15. So it was great to see you. uh, Initially, Sagu was going to come to Durham to document my in-person teaching. uh, But because of COVID, everything's online. So... Uh, they documented online and we were able to exchange some names and contacts uh, last night and I reached out to folks around the country to other trans faith leaders Um, so I'm hoping that this becomes a really robust project because what a great chance to be visible in really important work during dire times. So that I've just finished like a stint of that and Salgu will be back for the book launch, which I'm excited for. We, we booked their flight for that. I was, you know, I volunteered to use points for that because I want to support their artwork. And I know not only being in partnership with you, Anna, as an artist, but also, you know, being partnered with the artist, you know, it. people don't take art seriously and they don't fund it as well as it should be. And so I wanted to contribute to the project by using some of my points to um, get the ticket. And, you know, luckily it was not that many points. And so they'll be back for the book event. So we'll get more pictures, more photos taken for that and more documenting of my life. And it seems very weird that my life is being documented, but here we are. Documented more so than just someone like copiously following your Twitter feed. Yes. Which at, at one point you wanted to live tweet my life. I did. I did. Yes. Yes, I did. I said that that would be an exercise that I would very much enjoy. Um, like while right. we were on the road, like live right. tweeting your life at home when you're a sloth. It's very boring. Like, yeah, very yeah. boring. But yes, I would yeah. love to live tweet your life on the road only because I have seen some things. Like the Arby's, and, for example. Like the Arby's, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> friends, we'll get to that story at some point. Yeah, I don't have I don't have anything amazing going on in my world this week. Um, I have a sick puppy. I um, am participating in a really fun panel this coming weekend on kind of talking about the state of neighborhood and the church here in Chattanooga, mm-hmm. which I'm really cool. excited about with some um, faith leaders of color and my friend, Trisha Dylan Thomas. And I am, I literally spent the entire week bitching about the fact that every 
place in the country from Oklahoma, really even farther west than that, Colorado to Maine, got snow, including Texas and Atlanta and South Carolina and Mississippi and Chattanooga, our little bubble of gorgeous valley hell got not a stitch of snow. I mean, on the map, you literally see like the line, like carve us out. And I've been nothing but bitter about it. And I haven't been ashamed to say it. I I need mother nature to step her titties up and like, give me some snow because I stayed in. I know, but I need it in my life and I'm not ashamed to say it. And I'm just putting it out there into the universe to more than just (laughs) the people that listen to me. In real life, I'm putting it out to all you podcasters. Please light a candle for that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Can I tell you just a quick story about what happened on Friday night? Yes. So, you know, I taught my class. I saw you for breakfast. And um, Friday night, we were going to get together with uh, some of Aaron's best friends. Because it has been a really hard week. And, you know, I had a lot of grief. And... um, I had several people pass away all at one time. Um, and then the stuff with my mom. And so they said, well, let's get together and do like a comfy pizza and jeans night, uh, down at Darren's place. And Darren lives not far from downtown and, um, has a real cute, uh, studio apartment, but then has a really, uh, large, um, like wreck, um, uh, I don't know, like club room, I guess you would call it with a really beautiful, like all windows, you can see the skyline and it's just really gorgeous at night. So she was like, let's hang out at my place and I'll host. So, um, she was like, and I'll order pizza. So she went to Slim and Huskies and the line was out the door and not moving very fast. Uh, so then she ordered from five points and it was going to, the pizza was going to be ready at nine o'clock that night. So I said, well, we're going to Whole Foods to get snacks and beer. Let me just get pizza there. So basically Aaron and I saved the day by getting Whole Foods pizzas. That nice. took 20 minutes. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So we took pizza over we had a great time and, you know, and Darren was like, well, if all else fails, if Whole Foods doesn't have any pizza, I have veggie straws and we can eat veggie straws. And <laughs> I was like, I'm night, not eating veggie straws. Your Friday night was much more productive, but maybe less entertaining than mine. I I was um, out for a birthday party and uh, tried to pretend like I was 25 again and spent See, the weekend that, that never yeah, recovering from a tequila hangover and Ugh. you know now that i'm 48 things just don't nothing about me bounces back the way it used to right nothing right right okay so um let's friends. get let's get serious here okay so friends um some of you may have heard this news some of you may not have um it is uh, it's been going around the airwaves for the last 48 hours that a mega church pastor in Oklahoma um, at a church called the Transformation Church was caught on video spitting into his hand 
like not just like 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 air spit, but like literally like hocking up spit into his hand and rubbing it on the face of one of his churchgoers during a sermon as an illustration of how problematic it is for you when other people don't understand how God can, God can kind of make your life icky when he's, when God's trying to make a miracle. Right. And this pastor whose, whose name is Mike Todd, um, who is a black pastor um, at this mega church, uh, spit in his hand twice and then rubbed it on this churchgoer's face. And the video went crazy. I mean, just yeah, all over the place. And so, like, look, we can talk all we want about how um, biohazardous that is, yeah. <laughs> how dehumanizing that is, uh, and demeaning. Um, but I wanted to take today and chat with you, Robin, specifically a little bit about the premise of the gimmick, the premise of the gimmicky illustration in our life, not just in sermons. I mean, sermons are problematic, but in, in our life as people of faith over the way that we should actually be using intentionality and relationality to build a closeness with one another and with whatever spiritual, um, you know, partner that we're seeking in the, in the ether. Um, and, and I, I'm, I'm still so stunned that this happened and that it's on video and that it went all over the place. And I mean, this guy apologized and said it was wrong, but let's be honest. I mean, you know, pastors have been using gimmicks for centuries um, yeah. I mean, there are still pastors who are handling snakes. Um, there are pastors who, I mean, I'll never forget, uh, and, and I know, I'm sure you have seen this illustration, um, where a pastor fills a jar with rocks, like big stones and says, um, like, can, can God fit into this jar? Is there any room for God in this jar? And as children or as, as adults, you say, no, no, there's no room. And the pastor sprinkles into the jar, all of these little stones and the little stones move into all the crevices of the, that the big stones leave behind and everyone's in awe of the space that was made. And, the pastor right. says, is there any more room? And everybody says, no, no, there's no more room. And the pastor gets out some sand and pours yeah. the sand into the jar. And the sand fills in all the little crevices. And um, is there any more room? No, there's no more room. And the pastor pours some water in the jar. And mm-hmm. and there's room for water. I mean, it, it, the, the, this, this illustration, this premise of illustration, this premise of... Um, like hyperbolic example 
for people to understand and learn the capacity of God's love or the capacity of God's wrath or the capacity of God's fill in the blank has been with us forever. I mean, mm-hmm. even Jesus spoke in parables <laughs> um, and yeah. used illustration um, as, as a means by which stories were told. But at what point do we lose, do, do, at what point are faith leaders complicit in searching so much for the gimmick that they are losing the message of, um, of, of theology and of ministry and of religiosity in a way that isn't second person or third person that really kind of, well, I have, come on, come on, come on. Just uh, well, I, I have, I have thought for a long time that um, people are performing a mockery of the Christian faith it, through anti-intellectualism and through the idolatry of money in capital campaigns instead of actually living out the Christian faith. Right. Instead of like practicing it. And I think you see this all over the place where, I mean, this is an example. People like Joel Osteen are an example. Um, The, this sense of um, self-help or positivity. um, It all just feels like a mockery of the Christian faith. And, and, you know, I was just with um, Aaron's parents who are Jewish and, you know, we come from a people Christians come from something. Yes. Yes. And being around Jews reminds me that our faith has a history. And, you know, so I ate kosher for a week and, you know, you use glass for some things, you use other plates for other things, you know, meat doesn't go on some things. Um, and, you know, and I, and I have a lot of, uh, friends who are Jews and, you know, Jewish people take their, the practice of the faith very seriously. And I think that Christianity in our time today, um, makes it into a mockery there. There is no, there is no living out what Desmond Tutu called being a prisoner of hope. There's no living that out. And so is that an indictment on a lack of theological formation or, or accountability of sorts on behalf of our faith leaders? Or is that an indictment on those who are being led by others and us not challenging their curiosity and their capacity to be intellectual in the work so as to have more of a robust faith, more of a a praxis around what they believe and what they understand. 
I mean, I think it's a combination of both. It's, it, you know, there are a lot of people who, when they become a pastor, the, it just becomes like a mechanism going through the motions. And instead of taking it seriously to be in community with people and to shape and shift that community through things like theology and ethics. And, and then also those of us who are parishioners or who are members of a congregation or a community, we aren't asking questions and, and it's, it's no one's fault, but we are all complicit in, in the problem. And so how do we move from gimmick or from an illustration that is um, lazy, uh, mm-hmm. an illustration that is, you know, something that um, could just as easily, you know, illustrate a corporate uh, ideology as it could a theological mm-hmm. ideology um, into the kind of ethic that builds community and that encourages what you just said, the asking of questions and the, and the, you know, inquisitive nature of being humans that are seeking the greater good. Because I, I will tell you as someone who has been a part of one denomination for all of my 48 years and, and having seen both the outside as, as only a parishioner and the inside as a faith leader, um, there is an, there is there is both an expectation on the part of the 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 your bishops and your and those that are you know uh, above you in the work of how you will deal with curiosity or mm-hmm. questioning or. In some cases, you know, simply folks that simply don't believe what you're telling them um, right. and how you will uh, encourage them to understand the way that the polity has been structured to be understood based on the formation of the denomination hundreds of years ago. Right. Like, yeah. um and, and I feel, I mean, you know, I see all the time that, that people, <laughs> pastors will start new churches or churches will redo their mission statement and it'll say something like, we're a seeking congregation or we're, we're, a, yeah. we're a church that encourages hard questions. And when in yeah. actuality, that's bullshit. Um, pastors yeah. don't really want to have to work hard enough. Yeah. answer hard questions all the time. Um, yeah. I think most pastors would tell you that if they get a hard question about once a month, that's enough for them, maybe even too much. Right. They don't want to be bombarded with the kind of toddler-esque, well, why? Well, what, you know, well, how? Well, what does that mean? You know, approach to right. theology that, that quite honestly, we require if we want to have right. a robust conversation around it right and therefore parishioners are stifled and silenced if not by word 
than by action <laughs> by yeah. those who are leading denominational yeah. structures and, and, and communities. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that it is, it is both, but I also think that we have, we have set our faith leaders up in such a way to have so much to do and so much going on in their world and so much responsibility that their capacity to be someone who manages the wrestling, who welcomes the curiosity, who wants right. to engage in those kinds of hard questions, um, it's, it's exhausting. It's just another thing on their plate to have to, to have. To well, and through. you know, I think, I think it may also depend on what you think the role of the pastor is in the church is, and, and is the pastor there to steward the community? And if so, how, and, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of the podcast series that I listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill and, you know, Mark Driscoll had a whole board of elders who took care of all the pastoral care issues. And then he focused on preaching. That's one model. Right. Um, and if you're going to disperse the care, then there needs to be some kind of uh, formula or plan or strategy that calculates, you know, if it's this kind, you know, because not everyone can handle the same thing. Right. So. And Mar- and Mars Hill was an operation. I mean, was a, right. was a machine that right. afforded Driscoll the, the benefit of having people that could do other things for him. That, that could handle right. other pieces of the work in many instances. And, and a lot and, of churches don't have that. Exactly. I mean, many of the pastors that listen to this podcast and that are part of the community that you and I kind of find ourselves in on a regular basis are, you know, just struggling every day to get up and det- and decide that they want to keep doing it mm-hmm. another day, another week, an- another month, yeah. another year. Um, it is exhausting and it is, it's not, I mean, you know, it's, it is, it's some, we are setting them up to not be able to no. um, achieve the kinds of expectations that we have for them, but that's a totally other episode. What about, I'm, I'm thinking about this in light of our conversation, how so many pastors are leaving their church and leaving ministry as their job. There's a lot of people saying, I'm not doing this. And I, and I wonder, is it because the church is structured in a way that is not supporting the emergent work? So is it a structural thing or, or what, or what is going on? Because I think, you know, this question about what do we do with the gimmick and how do we actually participate in theological formation it is also a question of who are the right kinds of people to be doing that kind of work? Because, you know, I went to seminary with a lot of, I went to United Methodist seminary and I went, I went to seminary with people who they didn't care about learning theology. You know, it wasn't, 
there was nothing about what we were learning or our classes that stimulated them to think that they could be shaped by this kind of thought. And so what were I they, think what were they what were they curious about? What what were they interested in when they were there with you? They just want to be a pastor. Okay. Okay. Right. And so there's this separation of, you know, being a pastor is a very complex identity that must include some kind of support for theological formation and spiritual formation. And a lot of people were not oriented that way. And so, so do we have a structural problem or, or what really is the problem here that is contributing to the gimmick? Yeah. Yes. And I mean, I think it's just like everything, there's a multitude of factors and it really does depend on, you know, where you find yourself in what denomination you find yourself, what kind of stability there is within the denominational structure, what part of the country you live in. I mean, every single thing is a contribute is a contributor to that, that question. But I think, I, I do think that we are, I mean, we are asking pastors who, you know, kind of come into their churches and have maybe an administrative assistant and a, uh, you know, director of music and maybe somebody that oversees their children's ministry. Um, They are expected to do all the other things, all the admin, all the, you know, care, all the spiritual formation, all the visioning, all the, I mean, yeah, sure. They have committees, but there, there are, that that is again one of those things that you are as good as the people that you are able to have around you and you are right. buoyed by the people who um have the talents that you need at any given moment and sometimes those talents are there and sometimes those talents aren't yeah but i think i think um preaching especially has become um something that pastors are pastors are trying to find ways to get through to their people and to have their people have genuine connections with the divine in that time that they are in, in a space together, whether that's virtually or in person, their pastors are so desperate for their, for their, people to feel that kind of connectivity that we know is possible through a connection with the divine, that the gimmick becomes something that is, it it becomes almost a do or die for like the, the service or the sermon coming off without a hitch. I mean, I remember when I was, you know, when I was, pastoring congregations and you know everything we you know we try to do sermon series and themes and trying to make it current and I mean we we did a whole sermon series based on the Game of Thrones which is like Mm -hmm. one of the most violent television shows yeah that has come you know in into our into our existence over the last 15 years and yet it also has some of the richest relationship examples yeah and so yeah like ha- like it was always a bit of a mind fuck for me like how ha- what are we like what are we trying to achieve through this like blending yeah. of um 
something that could be perceived as challenging with something that can give true, good, illustrative examples of, of how the world could, could look. But I think pastors are finding that there's so little interest in their parishioners being engaged outside of that one hour once a week that they have to dump every egg into that basket and I mean, you know, we did an episode um, last fall where we were curious whether, you know, the future of a Sunday morning yeah. is, is possible or not. Like, will will we be a people who kind of think of Sunday morning as the time that we gather together in faith community moving forward? I think you and I would surmise that that kind of community and that type of relationality is something that we should be searching for and engaging in 24 seven, 365. Right. But for many church is a to do, right? Not a way of life. Spiritual formation right. is secondary to the requirement or the checkbox. They feel like that they are trying to kind of get off their list at the end of the week. If they th- yeah. think of Sunday as the end or if they, the beginning of the week if they think of Sunday as the beginning. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, I think this brings up a lot of sort of questions and curiosities about the work that we're doing with, with the app and how to create democratic space that is politicized, that also provides a culture of belonging we have to think through that. We have to have embodied awareness about that. And hopefully the combination of thinking and feeling and being will allow something to emerge. And and I just don't think church is thinking the institutional church, I don't think is thinking on those terms. And, and, I, I and there's still a bunch of money in sort of survival mode at this point. They, they are, but, and there's still a bunch of money being sunk into a thing yeah. that I think needs to shape and shift. Right. Yeah, I, I am. I mean, I remain curious every day about what the future of spirituality looks like in this, mm-hmm. uh, in the, in the midst of this movement um, and how we, how, or how I not I, I don't even want to make it collective. Like what what is my role in that? People ask me all the time. Like right. when you when the United Methodist Church finally splits, are you gonna are you gonna go back? Like will you be able to get your job back? And and there's an optimism in there right. in the question. And right. my answer is normally not what they want to hear, which is I don't know. I don't know whether I want to be part of a new denominational structure that hasn't done its work, that hasn't dismantled right. the things that it needs to dismantle and reworked its understanding of who it is to be in the world. Um, I don't know that I want to go back to leading a local congregation for all of the things that I just mentioned over the last 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, I And I don't know if the best use of my talents and, you know, what I believe to be 
you know, a pretty um, active kind of, you know, desire to be in the work is yeah. is right in the local church. I don't know that that's the best yeah. place for it to be to be done. And so I don't know the answer. I mean, would I yeah. like to just so I can like give the finger to the, you know, UMC and say, ah, look at that bitches, I'm back. Yeah. I'm sure. But <laughs> that's not the but that's not what the, that's not what I want the rest of my life to be to be molded right. and shaped around. And right. so I I don't I don't know. I I what I do know is that the kind of community that activist theology is talking about, the kind of spirituality that I have the ability to sprinkle into the work that I do in the world and the way that I feel as if I'm able to use my voice in the, in the hopes of collective liberation is the kind of community and the kind of spirituality that I want to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we'll be eating together. That's all, that's all I know for me. Yeah. Yes. Hopefully we'll be able to do that around a common table and around, you know, um, through small group gatherings. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I only know what I, I want from me and then what I dream and imagine for us as a community. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's curious to me. It's curious to me how the church moves past. I mean, you know, Mike Todd is just one example of a poor decision and the way that, you know, I mean, it, it, I, I feel like if he had had um, the kind of community around him <laughs> that had allowed him to understand why an illustration like that wasn't the right thing to do, that he wouldn't yeah. have done it, but I don't know that. Like, I mean, that's yeah. just, that's what I hope. Um, yeah. But he's just one of many, many yeah. theological leaders who are contributing to the, the ether of a hyperbolic gospel Yeah. that is only being used to get a message across for one hour a week. Because that's all they, that's the only straw that they feel like they can grasp at to actually get people to pay attention. Yeah. And I don't know, I don't know what you do about that. Mm-hmm. Mike Todd won't be the last person that we're, right. you know, talking about, you know, trying to be, trying to, trying to use a gimmick or um, an illustration that goes sideways. Mm-hmm. But in the middle of a pandemic. In the middle of a pandemic. I re- like, <laughs> Yes. Like, there, yeah, there's like all the compounding things that make it extra wrong right now in the yeah. world. But uh, honestly, like if he'd have done it three years ago, it, it probably wouldn't have made the news the way that it did. But it's mm-hmm. still a big pile of stinky crap yep. <laughs> that, yep. that, that him and his congregation have to walk through and deal with. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's a lot. It is. It's a lot. It's, um, it's, it's, 
it, I think it's going to get more confusing before it gets more clear. Um, yeah. But I also know that uh, if we if we can center ourselves around the kind of imaginative possibility that community presents for us and take our eye off of the compelling need for the pastor and the local yeah. congregation to do all of that work on behalf of the the you know the the creator that seeks us then we'll we'll be in a better place ultimately yeah 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 well friends thanks for uh joining us on this bizarre conversation um <laughs> you know you, you don't you don't normally wake up on a tuesday morning and think that you're going to talk about a pastor spitting on his hands and rubbing it on somebody's face uh on no. your podcast and yet never and yet Never here we are. Here we yeah, are. Here we are. Um, it's like Groundhog Day all over again. I know. I know. Friends, follow us on the Activist Theology socials at Activist Theology. Do join the app. Become a part of this community. Um, we are building it. We're, we're, we're kind of flying the plane as we go, but there, this is going to be a space that I think really has the capacity to, to frame and shape this conversation. And we would love to have you there. You can do that by visiting atporch.com. So the activist theology porch, that's where you'll find Robin in their big old rocking chair, just sipping on a bourbon and waiting for you to arrive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Until next week, Dr. Robin. In the words of Desmond Tutu, let's become prisoners of hope. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. I show up so early. They show me no mercy. So I just keep working. Maybe God could save me. Oh, my boss might pay me. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.